0: Welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershan. I teach film and English literature at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I gave to my students in the winter of 2021 in a course where we were looking at how media handles the same sort of narrative in vastly different ways. And uh, the core of our course has been Emily St. John Mandel's novel, Station Eleven. And our comparative text for today is George Miller's amazing action chase, crazy post-apocalyptic film, Mad Max Fury Road. So, some of the articles that we've been looking at this semester keep comparing Station Eleven with other more bombastic, violent crazy post-apocalyptic narratives where the focus is entirely on survival. And in Carmen uh, Mendez-Garcia's article, uh, she mentions Mad Max Fury Road and that wasn't the reason that I chose the film for the course. I mean, it was a nice affirmation, but I had already been thinking about how Mad Max Fury Road was in conversation with station 11 for some time, for a few years, pretty much uh, after the film was released on uh, home video and I was able to watch it multiple times. And I would be prepping for, uh, you know, teaching station 11. And it suddenly occurred to me that at the level of story They were doing something very similar at the level of story. So you might remember, we talked about this earlier in the semester story. That's just the plot elements narrative, how that story gets communicated, particularly in a certain form. And I don't want to, I don't want to jump to the story that I think they're both telling um, just yet. We're going to get there. But initially, uh, what we want to talk about in terms of the conversation that's happening between Station Eleven and Mad Max: Fury Road is one that you can't miss. If you know, if you've read Station Eleven, uh, if you've read any of the articles that we've been looking at—Maximilian Feldner's article, Carmen M. Mendez Garcia's article—we know survival is insufficient. So the idea is that. Station Eleven is a distinct novel. It's distinct from these other works. It's a distinct work of post-apocalyptic fiction in that its focus isn't primarily on survival. But there's a way in which these articles talk about works like The Walking Dead, Mad Max Fury Road, as though they have nothing to do with the thing that Maximilian Feldner identifies as these two pillars of Station Eleven's um, peculiarity. Uh, what makes it unique? Culture and memory. Culture and memory. These are these things that that exist within the world of Station Eleven in a way that you can't miss. But we have less, uh, ex- at least explicit representations of the violence of these post-apocalyptic worlds. So the focus in Station Eleven is less about survival and more about culture and memory, while ostensibly these other works are just more about survival. But I think think it would be a mistake to assume that that's the only thing that they're about. So let's let's take a look at what we've got here with Mad Max Fury Road. Now, just like at the beginning of the semester when we talked about film, we talked about five aspects of film language. Camera work or cinematography, sound, editing, mise-en-scene, which is production design, costuming, everything that pretty much appears in the frame. That's really what that means in French, everything in the frame. and then acting. And so often I think people come away from movies say, how was it? Ah, oh, it wasn't very good. The acting wasn't very good. Well, what about the rest of it? What do you mean the rest of it? As though acting were the only thing that can make a movie great. Um, but movies can be great for all these other reasons too. Uh, Mad Max Fury Road, in my esteem, is good in every respect. It's great in every respect. Uh, There isn't a facet of film language that this movie doesn't do well. It's fabulous across the board. I bring these things up because I want to talk about uh, Max's journey in the narrative. How Max begins and how he finishes in this film. And I realize, of course, that there's so much about this film that isn't Max's story. Um, But that isn't the focus of our course. The the journey that Furiosa takes in this movie isn't as much of a focus for us. Although I am going to touch on it a little bit because let me just be perfectly honest. (laughs) I love this movie. And here's the danger. Whenever you lecture on something you love, it's really hard to not want to put it all in there. So for those of you who are writing essays and you're like, I just don't know what to cut. I, I understand. I feel, I feel that. The movie begins with Max standing beside his car, his somewhat iconic car. If you'd seen the original Mad Max films, this is like, you know, this is like the Lone Ranger's horse. This is like Han Solo's Millennium Falcon. This is the iconic thing. This is Superman's, you know, S. This is, this This goes, these things go together. Um, of course, the car is going to be taken away from him very, very early on in the film. But there he is standing beside the car. And what we're getting here is a wealth of information. Let's never forget about film that it gives us, you know, if a picture is worth a thousand words, what do you do when there are 24 frames per second? When there's 24 frames photos per second or 30 or, you know, whatever, How many frames per second we're filming in digital. But this movie begins with a moment of survival. And it is an echo of one of the earlier Max movies in some ways. Um, In The Road Warrior, made way back in the 1980s, there's a scene where Mel Gibson playing Max eats dog food. And back then, we thought that was pretty badass. We were like, "Whoa, Max is eating dog food! Could you eat? Do you think he could eat? Do you, could you eat dog food?" You're like, "Well, if I was in the post-apocalypse, I think I could." Um, Max isn't eating dog food in this scene. It looks like he's, you know, taking a leak, and then along comes this uh, lizard, and he steps on it, crushes it, shoves it in his mouth, starts chewing on it. This is the dog food, dog food scene, but it's been ramped up. Mel Gibson's Max in Road Warrior was feral, but he wasn't feral like Max, played by Tom Hardy, is at the beginning of Mad Max Fury Road. He says that he's been reduced to one thing, to one urge, to one motive, to survive. That's all he's got at the beginning of the film, is to survive. It's fascinating to take a look at the way that the film uses sound And editing at the beginning of the picture as Max runs over, picks up all of his stuff and shoves it into the car. The sound effects that accompany Max's movements are car sounds. As though he's not even a human anymore, he's just one of these machines. He's been reduced to something less than human. Feral, machine-like, just parts. Trying to get away. Trying to survive. And the film is a masterwork of so many, as I've said, so many moves in film language. Um, Mise en scène, everything that appears within the frame, the, the lighting, the location or the set, the... In this shot of Max crawling along the ground, the vehicles that surround him, the dust in the air, the wig that Tom Hardy is wearing that shows that Max's hair is really, really long. He's got a really, really overgrown beard. This is a man who no longer cares about his appearance, his hygiene. He's just surviving. And in the next sequence where Max is dragged off towards Immortan Joe's Citadel, Immortan Joe, the villain of the film, Immortan Joe's Citadel dragged behind these vehicles again, like an animal, like something less than human. But the mise-en-scene sets us up for where we're going. We see the Citadel in the distance, the vehicles taking Max there, but once we get there, we're not inside, we're not outside the Citadel seeing, you know, all of that. We're inside with Max close up as he's, his hair is shorn, his beard is, is shaved off and he is tattooed, tattooed. And my wife, you know, we just watched this recently. My wife said, what are they tattooing him with? And I said, it's like they're, they're giving all of his vital statistics so that he can be used as he will be as what? The term blood bag. That's all he's going to be good for shortly is the fluids that run through his system. That he is O-negative, high-octane, universal donor. That is what he has been reduced to. These are moments of mise-en-scene. The The film doesn't stop to have somebody walk out and give us exposition. Because the, this movie doesn't need exposition. It doesn't need someone to come in and go, let me produce some dialogue that will explain to all of you what's going on. This film doesn't doesn't... Ask that of its audience. It doesn't, or it doesn't even offer it to its audience. It says, Hey, we're going to get moving pretty fast here. Keep up. And, but it's doing it in a cinematic way. I think that we're just so primed by talky films, films with dialogue, films with voiceovers, films that explain everything that's going on. And George Miller was unrelenting in his devotion to the vision that he had for this film. In that, there is very little dialogue and there is next to no exposition in the way that you would find it in other films like this, where they would explain how the world ended. They would explain how Morton Joe got where he is and why he's mining water out of the earth, how they would explain what had happened to Furiosa in the past. There are so many questions that we have at the end of this movie about the world. And yet at the same time, we're getting answers to them throughout the film, not perfectly clear answers, but suggestive answers. Um, this movie isn't interested in telling us all of those things, but it is interested in telling us this aspect of Max's story. But we get, we get this recurring motif through the mise-en-scene of this skull with flames above it. Very sort of thing you'd expect to see on a hot rod on really fast car. And so it fits within the universe of Max's um, post-apocalyptic world. And they're going to brand Max with it. And when Max sees this, he escapes And where does he escape to? He escapes outside, more mise-en-scene, we see a repetition of that motif, that skull motif up on a cliff wall with those tubes where, you know, water is going to pour out later, but this is all coming at us so quickly we can't absorb it all, but we can absorb that skull. And we're like, okay, clearly the skull in a circle with the flames, this, this is, this is meaningful, This has something to do with the narrative. And then Max is dragged back inside the Citadel. And in one of my favorite edits in the history of cinema, I'm not kidding, uh, the movie messes with the original audience of Mad Max. The, I guess, 40-somethings is what we'd have been. People like me, people who have been uh, guys in their 50s, too. Middle-aged men who had seen Road Warrior, Mad Max, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome back in the 80s and loved it, and we showed up because we, you know, Mad Max, here we go. And the very next cut, so Max is dragged away. We've seen that that he was probably going to be branded, and the very next shot we get is that brand on the back of a neck. And next to the brand is the sort of shoulder armor that we associate with Max and with other warriors of the wasteland. But as the shot pulls out, so th- this is the magic of editing, uh, th- well, you know, hand in hand with mise en scène. As the shot pulls out, we see that it's not Max at all, but it's this woman. And of course, this was infuriating that Furiosa became the focus of so much, so much of the film. I mean, the first big chase scene of the movie, Max is just going to be on the front of a car as a blood bag, and that was that was really that was infuriating to a lot of people. But I was interested in seeing, like, where, you know, where are they going to take this? What are they going to do with this? What's going on? When we watch a film, got to be watching close. got to be paying attention to what's on the screen. I know lots of people who say, you know, like, oh, yeah, I was watching TV while I was doing something else. I was watching the show while I was doing homework. I was doing laundry. I was You're not watching the movie at that point. You might be hearing the movie. But let's face it, if all you could do was hear Mad Max Fury Road, how much of it would you know? This is a very, very visual picture. And inside those visuals, we are again receiving a wealth of information in the white bodies and skull-like faces of the war boys, the rat rod hybridized vehicles of everybody. everybody. And the way in which, you know, that when when Furiosa locks that steering wheel in, we get a reiteration of her missing arm. And that, you know, there's this fine uh, wired filigree that has been shaped into this skull. So we got that repetition of this skull and we realize, oh, she probably serves whoever it is that runs the show here. And we finally find out who runs the show. We find, you know, we, we, we are introduced to Immortan Joe, but we learn that Immortan Joe has been keeping wives and they have escaped or they have been taken. We might say they have been taken, at least as far as Joe is concerned. And here we arrive at our overlap our moment of story slash narrative with Station Eleven. These movies tell the same story in one thread of St. John Mandel's novel. And it's the story of a crazed, prophetic, charismatic leader, cult-like figure who has many wives. (laughs) And in Station Eleven, just one of them is taken, that young girl. She's not really taken. She stows away, right? But those are details. Those are narrative details. The story is: crazed cult leader, wives, theft, escape, chase, and then we'll see what else. So we're introduced to a Morton Joe, who is this cult-like figure who is now missing some wives. There's this whole wonderful—I think it's absolutely brilliant—subtext about um, issues like patriarchy, issues like uh, that are related to the empowerment of women. Uh, we are not things. We will not be objectified. We will not be treated as property. The commodification of bodies, all, all really, really great content, but sadly not really our focus today. Mise en continuing to communicate so much about the world that we're in. And I mean, if you don't believe that a Morton Joe and the prophet are similar because, you know, the prophet, he's into the Bible and a Morton Joe never, a Morton Joe is worshipped. He's like one level up from the prophet. He's not even like, he's, he's not just working off of somebody else's religion. He's created his own and he's the God in that, in in this religion. He is the divine figure and the, the religious rituals, the practices of his cult are all uh, related to muscle cars and, you know, gearhead culture. Um, the way that, uh, you know, the, the one w- war boy goes in to get a steering wheel and he raises his hands in prayer and, and, you know, basically says a, a small prayer to V8 that, you know, the, the V8 engine of the muscle car, the V8 that they spoke about in Mad Max and in, and in, in road warrior, that's the, that's the car that you gotta have a V8. Um, being raised to the level of religious iconography in this film. And, and again, the movie never stops to go, oh, and by the way, they worship cars and Morton Joe. The film just shows us that, and it does it through film language. The way the shots are done here, I mean, the light focuses down on this this altar of steering wheels, um it all becomes almost monochromatic in this shot with the war boys in their white paint and their blue black uh face paint and then the rolling out of the army all these vehicles all these great muscle cars um rat rods uh, it's just it's car culture gone wild and from the perspective of people who just showed up to see shit hit the fan there's excitement because you know, like these cars are going to explode later on. There's going to be all sorts of great spectacle. We know what to expect with a post-apocalyptic film of this nature. Mad Max spawned a whole array of copycat films in the 1980s that went direct to video that were, you know, people on motorcycles, people in wrecked cars, smashing into each other, stunt work galore, never quite achieved the brilliance of George Miller's uh, uh directorial abilities, Um just a moment to pause and say, what else has George Miller done? Babe, he did Happy Feet. And you may be like, really? You're going to cite those? Hey, listen, if you can do Fury Road and you can do the Talking Pig movie and be successful with both, I kind of think you've got game. You've got range at the very least, And, uh, and, and the other thing that I want to highlight here is just for, you know, those of you who are really digging, getting into, at least you're getting your toes wet with film, uh, language. Um, I'll, I'll I'll, I'll firstly mention that, you know, you can go back into other episodes here at the YouTube channel or on on the podcast and look into the the whole series that's about um, narrative in film, deeper dives into all of this sort of stuff. But in terms of the way that this sequence uses sound, not only are we hearing the roar of the engines, but we are hearing uh, Junkie XL, aka Tom Holkenberg's amazing score that at many points emulates the sound of a car engine there's there's moments when he gets the brass this really deep brass sound to go and it's like right and then there's all these like these high string like he's a timing belt like he's he's making the very soundtrack uh, uh, express the, the car culture of this film. But then there's also this wonderful back and forth with diegetic and non-diegetic sound. So to remind you, diegetic sound is the sound that happens inside the film's world. So the sound of a car engine revving is diegetic. Tom Holkenberg's score, doing that low, brassy rumble, is non-diegetic. But because we have this one war wagon that is he has got drummers on the one side and a crazed nut bar on the other with a double-necked guitar that has a flamethrower attached to it in red long underwear. Um, We get a blurring of the diegetic and non-diegetic sound in this film. And it's so great because there is a way in which I think it signals to us that this film goes, we know we're a movie and we know this is completely over the top. And we know, we know. We know, so buckle up, and 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 I think that it, it signals in a way that that this film can go into really ludicrous moments with uh, not only the the craziness of this giant stack of of speakers and uh, the you know the doof wagon as it's called, um, but that when we get to moments like Max and Nux crashing in the desert, that we don't stop to go, well, it's kind of fakey that they would have survived. I mean, his arm probably would have been ripped off. At at that point, if you think that that's how this film is supposed to operate, you've missed all the cues leading up to that moment that sort of indicate just how bananas this movie is. But it's in looking at shots like this that we step back and we go, OK, maybe Station Eleven and Mad Max Fury Road are telling the same story, but they sure as hell aren't using the same narrative to do it. So narrative is that individual way of expressing a story. There are ways in which Mad Max Fury Road is very similar to the story of Homer's uh, Iliad. But it's not the same narrative by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, Max's name is not Achilles, and we are not in front of the walls of Troy. But instead, we have the armies who would have been arrayed around Troy trying to get back uh, fair Helen, um, chasing a decked out semi-truck, spraying, you know, chrome on their faces, uh, and doing all sorts of absolutely bananas stunts. But that, too, is an, an, an indicator of difference here, that the, f- the, the, the feral nature of the War Boys, the feral nature of Max, signals to us just how far removed the post-apocalyptic world of Mad Max is from the post-apocalyptic world of Station Eleven. But that doesn't mean that we would say that the world of Mad Max has no culture. Because after all, The world of Mad Max has the Doof Wagon. It has music. It's bananas, metal, double neck guitar with great big tribal drums music, but it's music nonetheless. It's not a traveling symphony performing acoustic versions of classical music and jazz, but it's music. And we don't have the culture of the traveling symphony performing Shakespeare, but we do have a culture that has mythology. The V8, the the, the, the the religion of the V8, this myth that's embedded into the narrative of the war boys getting to go to Valhalla, the Norse hall of heroes. Um, and then the practice that they have right before they go where they spray chrome paint on their face and on their teeth so that they will be as shiny. We hear that word a few times, right? Nuck says, I've never done anything so shine at the one point so that they will be shiny, just like shiny and chrome, just like Max's car is now. Like this is a culture that reveres the car. That's culture nonetheless. It's a culture of violence. It's It's a culture of patriarchy. It's a broken, broken culture of anger, machismo, bravado, but it is nonetheless a culture. And so, you know, Max focalizes that for us. Max, you know, the the complaints that people had like, oh, Max was only, he's just hung on that car. But yeah, but Max goes everywhere we need to be to see what we need to. The movie's still working firmly within the confines of fictional contrivance. So that Nux's car is always right where we need to be so that we can see the amazing stunts. We can see the moment when Marceau uh, dies and it's mediocre uh, as, you know, he's, painted his face, and, and, and he's gone to this moment of ritual suicide in the middle of battle so that he can go to Valhalla, expressing the culture of the world of Mad Max, even as the narrative continues to tell the same story that we see in Station Eleven. It's just high octane. Like, we don't have a car chase in Station Eleven, but we have a chase. I mean, ultimately, I suppose we can say we do have a car chase. It's just cars pulled by horses, and the pursuers are on foot, and yet There's still a sort of tension to it. But is it the same level of tension that we get in Fury Road? I don't think so. So then we get the moment when Max is revived. And here I want to come back to that idea of Max being reduced to nothing more than this agent of survival. Max wakes up after this, you know, first great chase scene. There's a spectacular ending to it and his car crashes the car that he's, you know, on the front of it. You know, and, and he and the driver are seeming, you know, we, we might assume they're dead. But Max rises up out of the desert. He's not dead. He looks around bewilderingly. He's still got this crazy, you know, it looks like a garden fork, this crazy muzzle on his face that's locked on. He can't get it off. And there's something just so animal about him at this point in the film. And he doesn't, have very many lines. And Tom Hardy was apparently a little bit nonplussed about this and went to George Miller. I went to the director and he said, you know, I really think Max should have more dialogue. And Frank Miller was like, just I got this. I know what I'm doing. He had this vision and he committed to it. And Hardy's performance, while it is not filled with dialogue, is filled with import. And we'll want to remember that when we get to Wally later on. Because Wally Doesn't have a lot of dialogue. For the first huge section of the film, there's just hardly any dialogue. There's some talking, but it's not dialogue per se. But does film need dialogue? Film's largely a visual medium, so does it need dialogue? In this case, the lack of dialogue is indicative of Max's state. People who had seen the earlier Max films would be thinking like, Is something wrong with him? He's hardly talking. Why aren't they giving any lines to Max? It's a good question to ask, but we need to pursue it. In the next moments, Max tries to free himself and the ways in which he tries to free himself continue to underscore this feral nature, this commitment to nothing but survival. He's ready to blow Nux's arm off to get himself free. Now, he thinks Nux is dead, I suppose. We all do. Uh, we assume as well as the audience. Um, but then he goes to chew. Like, he actually tries to bite Nux's fingers off. Like, he's, try- he, he's that feral. He's that animal. He's just not nearly as human as people who knew the rest of the series would assume. But if you'd never seen a Max film before, you'd just be like, this guy's bananas. He's dangerous. He's crazy. We're probably identifying far more with Furiosa at this point in the film than we are with Max. And when Max goes over and he sees the brides, the women who, you know, were imprisoned by Immortan Joe, he speaks in guttural, near monosyllables. Water. Like, he doesn't say, could you please bring me some water? He's just water, right? And there's this gruff aspect to him in this sequence, which lacks sophistication, civilization. It lacks a human element. He's ready to kill for water. The fight scene that accompanies this is filled with... A bunch of really, really key camera angles that convey certain things about the movie. And I just want to take a moment, a moment of digression to highlight, and perhaps for reasons of, again, bringing this into conversation with Station Eleven, where we absolutely have a sort of Furiosa and Kirsten. She's just not nearly as furious. But we have a strong female character who is part of the group, trying to get away from the crazed prophet. In this film, it's fascinating to see the, the fight scene between Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy as Furiosa and Max respectively, because the fight scene never places Furiosa in a position of weakness. What, what do I mean by that? Well, if you have what we call a high angle perspective of a subject, it makes that subject look small just by virtue of, you know, where it is. All you have to do is you have to think, like, if I was the camera, I'd be bigger than that subject. So, high angle means that the subject looks small. Low angle means that the subject looks big. If we have a, you know, sort of even eye level point of view, it means that the subjects are even. And if you go and you do a very, very close study of the fight scene between Furiosa and Max, what you'll see is that Furiosa is never in the low position, save once. Max ends up there a couple of times. Furiosa is regularly framed as the more powerful of the two, even though in a sort of vernacular way, she's fighting him with one arm tied tied behind her back. And at one point it's two on one. There is a point at which Furiosa is in the weak position, but it's largely to give us the view of what she's trying to grab, which is the hose so that she can, I mean, I would say pistol whip, it's the right term, but she's really hose whipping him. Um, and, uh, and, and so that entire fight positions her as strong. And it's just how cinematography works in this particular movie to communicate Furiosa's strength. That's not to bring Max low, really. I mean, he loses, but at the same time, we still he's still coded as strong. He's still coded as capable. But ultimately, this is this really Max's movie. But we are going to stick with his story. But it's interesting to me just to see how the camera establishes those things. Uh, again, mise-en-scene, the side of the semi-truck, um, Furiosa's war wagon, The the, the war wagon has um, this skeletal arm on the door that is, you know, it tells us a little bit about, you know, it doesn't give us clear indications, but it's more story of her losing her arm. It's a reminder, you know, of the lost arm. Finally, though, uh, Max, you know, has joined up with Furiosa and these brides who are fleeing Immortan Joe. And it's... It's a strange moment in the movie because there's a lot of film has gone by. There's a lot of time in the film has gone by with Tom Hardy with that, that garden fork muzzle on his face. And then they finally get it off. He finally files it off. And in that moment, he's immediately more human than he's been. Not necessarily in his performance, although he is starting to actually talk more. But he gets it off and right away, he's got more of a face. He's less of this feral dog that he's been since the movie began. I mean, because that's what we associate muzzles with, is with rabid, you know, animals or animals that, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't be allowed loose because they're dangerous. So he gets that off finally, and he gains a face. He becomes a little more human to us. But in case we are of the same opinion that all of these chase scenes and all of this violence really adds up more to what Mendez Garcia and Feldner would position Station Eleven like alongside Mad Max, which is that Station Eleven is about more than survival, and all these other works are primarily about survival. I would reference the moment that they find out that there is no place that they can flee to, that the place that Furiosa has been taking the brides to get away from Immortan Joe is no longer there. And the moment that she walks out into the desert and screams in rage, says, no, this movie is about more than just survival. It's absolutely about more than just survival. It is about thriving. It is about the desire for there to be more than a world of violence. Now, is it doing that in the same way that Station Eleven is? No, absolutely not doing it in very different ways. But I don't think that... I I think you could take Station Eleven's theme and map it onto Fury Road. That ultimately, survival is insufficient. Because they have the opportunity for survival and Max comes along. And in this wonderful shot... I mean, if if you're watching a movie and you ever see, like, you know, all, all of the many mothers and all of the brides and Max and Furiosa, and they're all framed in one shot, that is a major achievement. All you have to do is just think of any family photo that you've had to gather for, and what a pain in the ass it is to get everybody in the shot. And yet we watch moments like this in the movie, and we're like, there's the people. We don't really think about the artistry that's being employed there. But in this moment, Max has chased Furiosa and the other women and Nux out onto the salt flats, which are probably all that's left of the ocean wherever they are. That's what salt flats for that many miles. What do you think was there before? Probably an ocean in this world of water. It's a water scarce world. Apparently they have fuel to burn, but they're, they're short on water. And Max says, if we turn around, we can have a fresh start. And what do they talk about? They just talk about survival. No, they talk about seeds. They talk about plants. They talk about possibility for new beginnings, new beginnings for that kind of hope and redemption that so many academics philip smith included talk about when they talk about station 11 the chase that takes them back is of course intensely violent it is a thrill ride to be sure it is some of the most complicated action sequences ever filmed and to fully understand just how complicated they are uh you have to understand that most of the time action sequences are filmed in the dimensions of, you know, driving this way, like going horizontally. And uh, you're mostly going to have the camera operating with things that are on the ground or maybe up in the air, but you're not going to have to deal with the sequences that involve the polecats. Steven Soderbergh, who is an excellent director in his own right, and we've already been introduced to Soderbergh this semester, um, Said of Mad Max: Fury Road, when he was watching it, he was like, oh, "Do I do I think I can make this movie? Do I think I could I could probably make this movie? I think I could make this movie." And he said that the moment that they brought in the pole cats, the guys up on the great big poles that keep dropping down, he said, "Nope, nope, that's too many directions to be understanding the action in in a way to." um uh, be able to keep co- coherency so that the, that the shots match up. And this this is all about editing. And Miller's wife was the editor for this film. She'd never edited an action film before. It's superb editing. It flows so well. And let me demonstrate what I mean with one of my favorite sequences in the film. So the polecats converging on the truck, grab one of the brides and drag her away. This is the moment at which the movie goes from maybe they're going to get away to everything that can go wrong does go wrong. And the movie begins to signal this shift, not only through the obvious tonal element of its soundtrack. The music signals just how dire things are about to get. But through the performance acting of Charlize Theron, as she looks back, she looks hopeless. And that's not a face that we've seen on Furiosa all that much in this movie. Immortan Joe raises one finger, one bride, uh, you know, just a few to go. Max has fallen off the side of the truck. Furiosa is holding him desperately. Again, Charlize Theron's expression at this point tells us as the audience how this scene should feel. Now, If Charlize Theron told by George Miller, you know, he was like, look really fierce, then we wouldn't worry as much that everything had gone to hell in a handbasket. But because Charlize Theron is showing fear, hopelessness, desperation, we as the audience now in sync with the music and the performance and all of these really fast edits are giving us the impression of things going horribly. Now, she is still being coded as strong because we'll note that the way that this shot is positioned... Is with the camera low. Uh, Max is somewhere down there. Um, but we're up with, uh, you know, we're up with Furiosa as she gazes down at Max. And then this, this one of the, the, the war boys, I guess we could call them, or just one of the mercenaries on, from one of the vehicles climbs up into the back of the truck and he's got some mutilated toy baby doll face with pins in it. And it's super creepy. I mean, in terms of the mise en scène, it couldn't be weirder. And it's super unsettling. And as the music is telling us to be unsettled, Charlie Theron's face is telling us to be unsettled. And then we cut away to this weird, messed up baby doll face. We feel the full import of this. And then he stabs Furiosa and he stabs her. And in a way that, like, we're, we're like, this is not good. This is not, you know, this is not going to go well. And the music again, it, it's almost as though the music is shifting gears to use the parlance of the film. And now our camera position drops really, really low. And even though Charlize Theron and the brides are being coded as strong because they're way up there, we're just too far away from them now. And you'll notice where we are as the camera, the camera, our narrator, we're on the flipping ground. We're so low. And so there's that sense of, oh, no, Max is going to fall. And then... Charlize Theron does what you do in an action movie. And that's the thing is you always have to assess a work by what it is, not what it isn't. You can be like, oh, it's kind of fakey that it happened at that point. Because if you take, if you've been stabbed and you take the stabby out of your, you will bleed to death. Yes. That's what happens in real life. Just like if you were in a car and you were chained to another person and then your car wiped out, you'd probably have your arm yanked completely out of the socket. Again, the point at which the guy blew fire out of the guitar told you that this movie was going to be not so much realistic, and here's the word that we want to use, as verisimilar. Verisimilitude is what films always work with, and verisimilitude isn't realism. It's the appearance of realism. So within the film universe, the diegetic universe of Mad Max, people can do kick-ass action stuff. That's just one of the rules. And so when... Charlize Theron, as Furiosa, turns her head and she looks at my Morton Joe with this look of fury and anger. Like she just, Charlize Theron is so good at this face. She's great. She, when she glares, I mean, she doesn't even get her whole face for this. She's like got her arm in the way, but her eyes, her eyes say everything. She glares at Morton Joe and the music starts to tell us, oh, get ready. Oh, get ready. And it's the action hero thing because action heroes don't actually have to like eat their spinach like Popeye used to back in the old days. They just have to decide. And and it usually comes, this is a convention of action films is that you you drive the action hero right to the edge of complete collapse and then they go resolution <laughs> and they come back from it. And if we are... What I, what I call in my other film class is the sympathetic audience. The sympathetic audience is the one that goes, I understand what the fictional contract is here because there's always a fictional contract between the audience and the filmmaker. Would you like to watch an action picture? Yes, I would. You know that things will happen in this movie that don't happen in real life. Yes, I do. You're not going to complain about that during the movie. No, I'm not. And if you break that fictional contract, I don't want you anywhere near me. I, I, I can't stand to be around people when we're watching something that, like, if it's a rom-com and the people are doing stupid stuff that end them up getting, uh, you know, like, they, they split up and people are like, that's so dumb. Shut up. That's what we're here for. We're here to see them split up so they can get back together. You're watching a horror movie and they do dumb stuff and you go, that's so stupid that they, you shut up. That's what we came here for. We wanted to see them do dumb stuff so the monster can eat them. And in this moment, it's not fair to shut up. I want Furiosa and Max to win. Don't you want them to win? Would you really? Would you have preferred the movie where she bleeds out in the truck? I wouldn't. That's not the movie we signed up for. So she glares over. We see the one bride. It's also desperate. But then, and and this is great. I mean, there's this great wide shot that shows all these vehicles converging on Furiosa's war wagon. And then, Nux, <sighs> tweaks the engine. The RPMs go up. We get a visual, a wonderful visual, just like if you were playing a video game and your health bar suddenly got jacked. A wonderful visual that says the truck is okay. The engine's online. Let's kick some ass. And the audience knows. The audience just knows. And then Charlize Theron. <laughs> it's funny. You, you all probably wonder, Dr. Pashan, what's happening to you right now? I get, I get choked up. I legit get choked up. Why? Because I love great art. I love great film. It's just so exciting to me. I'm not joking around. I got teary just now thinking about this sequence because the music's so good and the performances are so great and the editing is phenomenal and the camera works off the charts and the mise en scène is completely lit. It's everything in this universe tells a story. There isn't one thing that doesn't. That look of rage and determination as she's still holding on to Max and then, you know, one of the most bananas moments in the movie, Nux kicks Max and he flips and jumps onto another car and we don't care because this is what we signed up for. She takes out the she takes out the thing that's been stuck in it and she throws it down on the ground and we're like you're an action hero so we're okay with that. And Max, he's got like a crossbow bolt in his hand and he clung, slams it against the truck cuz who would pick it out if you can slam it against the side of a vehicle. And it's just it's everybody's tough all over the place. And this and the moment turns around. The moment in the film through this series of tight edits, through performance, through every form of visual language signals to us that all is not lost slow things down for a little bit here at the end close to the end and i want you to consider the big difference between station 11 and um mad max fury road when it comes to the death of the prophets in each because a martin joe's kind of like the prophet what's the big difference graphic on the one hand mad max fury road remember me puts a harpoon on his mask and Literally rips his face off. There's a quieter death in Station Eleven for the Prophet. There's a quieter death, right? It, it's not brutal. There's a, there's, a, there's a shot. There's remorse. There's a sense of sorrow at some level in the deaths that surround that. Whereas in Mad Max Fury Road, we're just glad Immorton Joe's finally gone. I don't think we feel sympathy for this character. He hasn't been crafted in a way to generate sympathy. There are movies where we can feel sympathy for the villain. I don't think George Miller ever meant us to feel sympathy for a Morton Joe. So it's the brutal, brutal aspect and explicit nature of the death in Mad Max: Fury Road that makes it. The, you know that we see, where we see the narrative distinction between these two narratives, two narratives that tell the same story. And then on the very next page, after the Prophet has died in Station Eleven, Kirsten notices something in you know the the prophet's book a folded piece of paper fell out of the book it says it was a page torn from a copy of doctor 11 volume 1 number 1 station 11 the first page of station 11 she'd ever seen that hadn't come from her copies of the books and we start to understand who the prophet really is but we won't get the we won't get the full payoff until until that last section that next that next section after the prophet this, this section titled like the book, Station Eleven. I came across uh, some wonderful art, no lie, just this morning. Wonderful moment of, of serendipity from an artist that I follow on Instagram who goes by the tag Harry Draws, H-A-R-I Draws. And it's this image that immediately made me think of Station Eleven, a great big um, space station that looks like a planet flying through the cosmos. And... It, it felt like an, an image from Station Eleven, the very thing that Kirsten picks up. So you just have to think about the difference in the way that that's handled. What's the next thing that happens in Fury Road? They flip a semi-truck and blow a bunch more stuff up. We don't slow down yet. I mean, the film does slow down. It will get there. It will have its moment. But it takes a little longer. And again, this moment where Kirsten discovers the comic makes us go, wait a second. Who's the only other person who would have had this in the post-apocalypse? And... If we've had suspicions about who the prophet is, we're probably pretty clear about who that is. And we're, we're really going to deal with that in spades next, next week as we wrap up Station Eleven. But first, we return to Max and Furiosa. As Furiosa is bleeding out, Max miraculously, again, signing the fictional contract, people, we don't go, you can't do a blood transfusion. Stop it. You can in this world. And did you really want Furiosa to bleed out? Um, the narrative doesn't want her to. So Max is giving her, her, giving her his blood. And in, I think, one of the best moments of Tom Hardy's performance in this movie, he remembers his name. And you might go, who cares? Like, why does he say this line? And what's going on with the performance here? Well, think back to the moment when Max is hiding in the truck and she says, what's your, what's your name? And he doesn't give her one. And she says, fine. When I yell, fool... Drive the truck away. He's not referred to as Max. Nobody says Max. We don't know his name, save from you know that's was on the marquee, it's on the poster. But in this moment, as Furiosa lies, perhaps dying, he says, "Max." And I, I, I genuinely think that the performance here is meant to say that he remembered it. Now, if you go back through the film and you just look at the way that Tom Hardy changes physically through. His performance through his, through the mise-en-scene, through the actions that he's performing. You know, he's all, he's just out for himself at the beginning of the movie, eating lizards, scraggly beard, crazy hair. But as the movie has gone on, loses the muzzle, he is increasingly humanized. And he has gone from the Max that we see at the beginning of the film who has but one, one motive, and that is survival, to someone who wants to see others survive. Someone who is willing to, to give of himself, to have that happen. And I think in that moment, he remembers who he was. He used to be a police officer in the canon of the narrative. He used to be a dad. He used to be a husband. And in this moment, I really think the performance, we we don't know for sure. I don't know for sure. It's just maybe how I'm reading it, because I'm a dad and I'm a husband. But it looks like he's going, because he nods. And then he goes, yeah, my name is Max. Kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm a human being. So... This to me is the moment where, even though you know Station Eleven and, and Mad Max have these overlaps of story, I think this was the moment where the theme overlaps. Where survival is insufficient comes sc- screaming out on the on the screen. It's not enough to just eat lizards and drive through the wasteland. There has to be more. and uh, And he discovers that along the road. He discovers that along the way. Next week we finish up. It'll be the last of these for the semester. Uh, We're going to be taking a look at endings. How does a work end, and what does that tell us about that narrative? We'll be looking at Station Eleven, and we'll be looking at T.C. Boyles' After the Plague.